Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, we speak to Dr. Elliot Weiniger, professor of sociology at the College at Brockport State University of New York. Elliot discusses his relationship with the work of Pierre Bourdieu, specifically in his ideas on cultural, social, and economic capital. Elliot expresses how these theories have inspired and have helped him make strides in his work on education. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Alicia. Okay, so today we are here to talk about Pierre Bourdieu. Could you give us just a short introduction as to who he is or what he's known for? Pierre Bourdieu was a French sociologist. He was born in 1930 and died in 2002. He was very influential during his lifetime, both in his own country and especially outside it. His work was translated into English starting in the 1970s. Um, And his influence has grown at a pretty substantial rate ever since. So he's now universally part of the sociological curriculum. It's pretty much impossible to get through graduate school and increasingly even an undergraduate program in sociology, I think, without, having, without getting at least some exposure to his ideas and writings. So you would say that he is pretty widely read in the larger discipline? Well, yes, but in some areas of the field, I'd almost say that it's sometimes when you try and publish a piece of research, there's such an expectation that you cite his work that I would say sometimes the citations of his work tend to run ahead of the actual reading of his work. It can become a bit of a a ritual gesture to cite him. And that's compounded by the fact that he has this atrocious writing style that makes him very hard to read. You can't just like sit down over the weekend and figure out what he's all about and be good to go on Monday morning. (laughs) Gotcha. So would you say that he's widely read in your subfield of education? In sociology of education, that's probably the first play, one of the first places where he made a big mark in Anglophone sociology and American sociology, specifically uh, starting in the 70s and certainly by the 1980s his work was being read and debated in the field of education. When did you first hear or become aware of Bourdieu's ideas? I may have read one or two little things as an undergraduate. I'm not, I can't even remember, but I know in graduate school I got into it very, very intensively, and I ended up writing my dissertation about Bourdieu. So can you tell us about what it was like when you first read that initial reading? I know you said you'd mentioned that it's like very dense to read maybe and what that experience was like. If you'll let me, let me give you a kind of personal story. Yeah, let's it's talk like, about it. <laughs> so I had a weird kind of route into sociology. I went to Hunter College, part of CUNY, as an undergraduate took a lot of philosophy courses and kind of started to veer into sociology a bit, but I liked sociological theory. By the time I got into graduate school in sociology and still at CUNY, I might add, I was really into sociological theory specifically. And at that time, theory was very much its own little world in the sociology. Theorists could be a little 
dismissive towards empirical researchers. Big ideas, don't you know, whereas other people are just number crunchers. <laughs> so I was pretty into theory, but I got a day job working for my university in there in a kind of administrative office that basically processed data and calculated statistics for policy and administrative purposes. So on the one hand, I had this kind of like ultra number crunching day job. Uh, and on the other hand, I had this kind of like this very self-aggrandizing theoretical orientation, which was, you know, kind of like, we're really just philosophers, we're social philosophers, but we, the sociology department will let us, give us a place to do our stuff. So I had these two kind of, I had the day job and then I had the stuff I did on my own time and they didn't really, they seemed very antithetical until I read Bourdieu. Uh, and Bourdieu is himself trained as a philosopher and he can be very dense and theoretical and abstract. But at the same time, in his own very unusual and creative ways, could get down in the weeds with quantitative or qualitative data. And I'd certainly never encountered a sociologist who could do both of those and who insisted that both of those were equally necessary. Um, So it was almost like Bourdieu was a way for me to reconcile these two sides of myself intellectually. Um, and And to top it all off, Bourdieu became famous in America early on, or notorious, for arguments he made about education. And as someone who worked in an educational bureaucracy, a higher educational bureaucracy, they were really, his arguments about education were really intriguing to me. Um, so it just kind of fit with me. I feel that. hope that's not too long. No, 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 not at all. You're great. You're golden. So, you know, after going through this, you know, you're in grad school, you're, um, you're engaging with Bourdieu's work. What drew you back to their writings, like, after, like, that first encounter? So one of the arguments that Bourdieu is pretty notorious for, some arguments he made when he was young, in the 60s about the function of education, of formal education. Bourdieu was very notorious for making these kind of intense arguments that formal education systems tend to do more to reproduce social class inequality over generations than to create social mobility between classes. And at the time, at least at the time I was in graduate school in the 1990s, that was far from the prevailing way that sociologists tended to think about uh, the role of education, uh, especially in you know the United States kind of prides itself, or at, it used to pride itself on having a high rate of social mobility. You gotta, right, you're young, but there was a time, I swear, there was a time. The United States used to very much pride itself on high, having a high rate of social mobility. And, you know, the data is always complicated, but Bourdieu's position, his arguments seem to be an outlier at that debate, in that debate. I think, I would contend at least that in the 
two and a half decades since, some version of Bourdieu's arguments on schooling and social mobility have moved into the mainstream. People do not seem to see, do not tend to see formal education as being unambiguously an institutional source of social mobility. To the contrary, you know, we know the school, that the schools in rich school districts are in poor school districts are not the same. We know that so forth and so on. So I think there's a kind of version of his story that fits the American case pretty well. How has Bordeaux's idea specifically influenced your own work? So I was super lucky. Around the, right around the time, I've, uh, right shortly after I finished my dissertation, uh, I met up with a qualitative researcher named Annette Leroux. Uh, she's very well known. She was pretty well known then, but mainly in the field of education, sociology of education. Um, now she's known more widely. Um, but I met up with Annette Leroux. We have had very similar kind of conceptual orientations. She too loved Bourdieu's work. She had been influenced by him. She had actually met him. I never met him. But she met him when she was, you know, at some point, talked about her work with him. And so we had kind of very similar views on the world, uh, the way the world works. We had similar interests in Bourdieu. At the same time, she was a committed qualitative researcher, really hardcore qualitative researcher. She uses interview data, but she also uses a lot of observational data. Uh, and she had wanted to do a little qualitative or quantitative work to test some of her ideas and see if they held up in a quantitative context and she had some grant money she wanted a postdoc um, and we had a mutual friend and she hired me to be her postdoc and it was super lucky for me so we've been working together ever since and that was more than 15 years ago we've published several papers together ironically um, she originally hired me as a postdoc so that we could try and test some of her findings her qualitative findings in a quantitative context or with quantitative data we've done a little of that but maybe ironically we've ended up writing more papers together that rely on qualitative data in fact, we're giving one at the ASA meetings next week. So that was an incredibly fortuitous event. I was, you know, I was very lucky. I knew someone who was friends with her. Um, and it's been just an incredibly productive collaboration for all these years. We have pretty complementary strengths, I like to think. Mm -hmm. And we've published a bunch of papers together. With the research that you've done within that root in Laurel, have you found that Bourdieu's ideas have been confirmed or denied, or have you just built on, like, how have you built on um, your research with his ideas? Um, yeah, I mean, we've found that, we find that Bourdieu's ideas are incredibly productive, and we feel that we can do good, compelling social science research using his ideas. At the same time, we feel that they kind of need to be adapted a bit to the context in which we're using them. Mm -hmm. So 
One of the things that can make Bourdieu a little, a lot frustrating is that he tends to be uh, a little hesitant about giving contained, concise definitions of key terms. And he always said that this is because the concepts he develops are only, they're not developed for in kind of abstract, as abstract theory. They're, he develops them as far as he needs to develop them in order to push forward his concrete empirical research. And that's great, arguably, but it makes using his concepts, you can't just mechanically transpose his concepts from one place and one time to another place and another time. To give you a simple example, one of his most famous concepts is the concept of cultural capital. That's Bourdieu. And so he gives very little in the way of an abstract definition of this concept. There are places where he does, but it's pretty abstract and it's not always super clear. When he talks about cultural capital in his writings, especially in his empirical writings, he off, for example, in his research on schools, he talks about how students have different amounts of cultural capital. And he says, we can't directly measure people's cultural capital. We need some indicators of how much cultural capital they have. What indicators does he use? He uses indicators of what are sometimes called highbrow culture. Students with a lot of cultural capital are ones who go to museums, art museums, symphony orchestras, operas, a theater, kind of very kind of, you know, highbrow, you know, who spend a lot of time reading literature. Those are the indicators he uses of quote-unquote cultural capital. Some people argue that that's still the appropriate way to go out and measure cultural capital. For us, not so much. In our view, that's not necessary. Given the abstract meaning of the term, that's not necessarily the best way to go out and evaluate how much or how little cultural capital someone has at all. Our argument was that kind of at the most abstract level, the concept of cultural capital means basically that you look at cultural orientations as a kind of resource that creates stratification. It's a resource that can be transmitted from one generation to the next. So just like you could potentially inherit money from your parents, you could also potentially inherit valuable culture from your parents. What makes cultural, what makes culture valuable has to something to do with institutional standards because the way particular institutions, especially schools, function, they end up rewarding certain types of culture that people have and penalizing other types of culture that people have. So that's kind of the abstract definition. How do you, what do you, how do you translate that into something that you can use empirically? That's what we try to do. Considering your research, are there any other theorists that you see Bourdieu's ideas um, working particularly well with? Bourdieu liked to think of himself, he was very combative. He liked to argue with, he spent a lot of time differentiating himself from other theorists and other sociologists in general. He usually tried to minimize 
areas of overlap, but there are people that at least partially uh, overlap with him in interesting ways. There was uh, an interesting English sociolinguist named Basil Bernstein, um, who spent his career basically studying class differences in language acquisition and language use. Uh, and some of his work overlapped quite a bit with uh, Bourdieu. Um, there's an American sociologist named Randall Collins, uh, and in many ways, although neither Bourdieu nor Randy tends to, you know, Randy's tends to emphasize his differences more than his overlap with Bourdieu, but there's definitely some overlap there. And I think Bourdieu's influence has become pervasive enough that his ideas are kind of just seeping into the general curriculum so that they're just part of sociology now and people pick up bits and pieces, whether the name, whether those bits and pieces are kind of hashtag Bourdieu or not. Great. So how has your relationship to Bourdieu's work changed since your first encounter? I would say that kind of my relationship, I don't think, has changed that much. Mm -hmm. I still enjoy reading Bourdieu's work. I reread stuff I read in graduate school, and I still enjoy it. I pick up things I hadn't seen when I read it for the first time. Kind of new work of his continues to get translated into English. At this point, it's usually lectures he gave. It's not formal writings that he published, but now it's kind of, they've gotten down to the lectures he gave. Mm-hmm. And I continue to read those and enjoy those. So I still very much appreciate his work and enjoy reading it. What I think has maybe changed is that I think there have been changes kind of in the wider intellectual domain that have made people more receptive to him. And again, I think the easiest example here is the kind of, in the way we view schools. I think the idea that uh, formal education, school systems can exacerbate intergenerational inequality is now a mainstream idea not just amongst sociologists, but amongst economists, amongst policymakers, amongst social scientists of all stripes. And so the way, there are different ways in which people make that argument. They're not, they don't necessarily draw on, you know, Bourdieu and cultural capital and this and that, but it's still a kind of Bourdieu-ish kind of worldview and that has become I think in policy circles throughout the social sciences in the kind of field of you know education kind of educational research has its own kind of little field in education schools and throughout all of them uh, a board if not Bourdieu per se then a Bourdieu-ish view of the way education relates to social stratification, not just acceptable, but dominant. So the short answer, it's no longer iconoclastic to kind of affiliate yourself with Bourdieu, at least not the way it was. 
and I'm fine with that. You're so well read. It's so great. Okay, and as a final question, um, reflecting on your projects and your experience in the classroom, what are the main advantages or selling points of Bordeaux's ideas? Bordeaux's ideas, you know, to me they have a lot of selling points. They kind of, they've had a big impact on how I do sociology and therefore how I teach sociology. At the same time, they can have drawbacks, um, so let me touch on that. Uh, and the first is Bourdieu's writing style. Um, for someone who was a pretentious, philosophy-minded student like me, Bourdieu's writing style is fine, and it's fun, and it's a game to like be able to deal with all the oblique references he makes uh, to long-dead philosophers. like. I enjoy playing that game. I was equipped to play that game. Mm -hmm. But to give it to undergraduate students, it's a pain in the ass. <laughs> the writing style is atrocious, and that makes teaching it challenging. So fortunately, and I have to say, I because of my background, my writing style can be kind of atrocious too, not to the degree his is. But fortunately, there are people like Leroux in the world mm -hmm who have a very friendly writing style and they do research in a way that is if usually pretty undergraduate friendly, at least willing to meet students halfway. So usually when I teach Bourdieu, at least in the theory class, I make you read a little of it. But outside the theory class, I try and filter it through you know, less traumatic writers. <laughs> so I feel like, you know, I feel like I can kind of keep track of what Bourdieu himself says and I can kind of say, okay, we'll read some Leroux and mm -hmm. see how this works in Leroux or whoever. Yeah, because they'll share like similar ideas. Yeah, so, like, it'll be easy to understand the idea if yeah. you read someone who's and easier to read. They'll be, you know, a little more adapted to the U.S. context, and so it just works a little more smoothly. Yeah, that's great. I think that's a perfect place to end. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You were awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. That's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank Jeff Gilbert for the cool theme song, Kyle Green for allowing me to be a part of this, and lastly, to all of you, the amazing listeners, for giving Theory a chance. 